0: The Precinct Omega Weekly podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit Wargame Vault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark. It's Friday the 23rd of July. My name is Roby Jenkins. Welcome to the Precinct Omega podcast. Uh, We're back to design this week and as promised last week we're looking at the topic of emergent properties. Um, Now I should say immediately that although it is Friday the 23rd of July for my patrons if they are watching this on the day that I release it uh, for everybody else, it's going to be a few days later. It's going to be Monday, the I'm very bad at this, Monday the 26th of July. Um, but for me, it's actually Friday the 16th of July. Reason being, I'm going to be away for a few weeks, and so I'm recording some episodes in advance. Um, I say I'm going to be away. I may not be away. Um, because you know coronavirus and stuff like that but certainly I am I am planning on taking a few weeks off one way or another Um, so I'm recording this ahead of time. Either way in theory it's Friday the 23rd of July. Um, I said last week that I was going to talk about emergent properties this week and so I am and I just kind of want to unpack first the idea of what an emergent property is. Uh, if you've ever watched one of my live streams or if you've ever watched several of my live streams you may have heard me talk about uh, an author called Douglas Hofstadter uh, and a book he wrote called "Girdle Escher Bach uh, An Eternal Golden Braid Uh, if you've never heard of it I recommend you look it up if you have but you've never read it I recommend you give it a look it is hard work uh, very entertaining, very engaging, but it's it's one of these books that gives you so much to think about on every page. And some things are really hard to get your head around. Um, there's a lot of mathematics in there, there's a lot of philosophy, there's some religion, spirituality, um, a lot of music theory, as the name implies, uh, some art. It's It's all... Very densely mixed up information. Uh, it was written back in the seventies. It won a Pulitzer Prize when it was published. Even the story of how it was written and how it was published is extraordinary. Um, and you know, it puts the hoops I have to jump through to publish my books look pathetically tiny and and, and small. Um, but it's a brilliant, brilliant book, uh, and it's influenced so much of my thinking. Um, and, you know, I, I do refer to it, refer to my recollection of which parts of it that I understand on a regular basis um, in life and in my work and in all sorts of things. It, it's been a really influential book in my life. One of the things that it touches upon that is close to its key theme is this question of emergent properties. And the the big picture theme of GEB, is where does human intelligence come from? And it relates that to the question of artificial intelligence, and Hofstadter made predictions about how difficult it would be to create a a true artificial sentience. and and justified this and this was back in the 70s he made some impressive predictions they are still correct um and they are very influential in the field and the, the broad thrust was that intelligence as we experience it is an emergent property of the physical qualities of our brain and how it works and broadly speaking what he he pressed upon was that any sufficiently complex system will experience this idea of emergent properties that is a what looks like a consistent and predictable consequence of the system for which the system itself was never designed or which which didn't intend now i'm going to play slightly fast and loose with that as a definition uh, in this episode, when we talk about miniatures wargaming. Um, but let me uh, first sort of set some some groundwork for emergent properties. Uh, and I, I'm going to try very hard to avoid contentious subjects, because some things are or are not emergent as properties, and, and, and people feel strongly about Different things. Um, let's look at something relatively uncontroversial and let's look at the work of Isaac Asimov. Okay, so, Asimov, if you've ever read the Foundation series, uh, came up with this idea of prehistory. This is a, a predictable future history. When you're dealing with a sufficiently large number of people, he hypothesized through his uh, Self insert character Harry Seldon, uh, that you could predict the behavior of large groups of people when there were sufficiently enough of them. And, and to be fair to Asimov, when he talked about enough people, he was talking about populations of people so large that they were spread across multiple planets throughout a galaxy. Um, You know, uncounted trillions of people is what he was talking about, vastly greater than the current population of the Earth. Um, But his idea was that when you've got that many people, that their behaviour becomes predictable, and that you can therefore predict, given certain starting situations, what the future will hold for the population as a whole. And that's a really good example of what Hofstadter would later draw out as being this idea of an emergent property. That the behaviour of these vast numbers of people, even though each individual member of that population is ultimately unpredictable, becomes predictable on a large enough scale. Uh, you, you can see it on a much smaller scale, and we're gonna be talking about much smaller scale emergent properties, obviously. You can see it on a much smaller scale when you talk about things like road networks. The behavior of cars and other vehicles on road networks is dictated by certain fixed parameters. So we've got laws, we've got the the performance of cars, We've got the markings on roads. We've got signs that dictate what you're supposed to do and when. But all of those, although they create what is theoretically a a predictable system, still results in emergent properties, even when everybody is obeying the law. I mean, the moment you put in people who, who fail to abide by those rules, all bets are off. But even when you're abiding by the laws, you get emergent properties like the movement of traffic snarls on a motorway so it only requires one person to break unexpectedly and you get a compression of traffic that then works its way back down the traffic on that motorway if the density of traffic is large enough and eventually it disperses because with time the amount of traffic reduces and so the property disappears. But that snarl that travels backwards down the motorway, that is itself an emergent property of the road network system. It is, um, as an idea, it is closely related to chaos theory. Um, And there are some really, really interesting exercises that you can look at online that, illustrate how even a a very simple system can create chaotic outcomes, which themselves can lead to emergent, unpredictable emergent properties. So things that the design, looking at the rules, would never have predicted. Um, a, A really good example of that is something called Langton's Ant. Uh, which Hofstarter references in his work, but we can now see happening online. If you go to langtonant.com, that's L A N G T O N A N T.com. Uh, langtonant.com allows you to create a, a variety of different exercises in the same field. Basically, the, the most simple version of Langton's Ant is that you imagine an ant. On a checkerboard, but the checkerboard is completely white. It's just divided into squares. When the ant goes into a square, the square will either turn green or it will turn red. Um, At the start, if the ant goes into a white square, there is an equal chance of it turning red or green. If it turns red, the ant will turn right. If it turns green, the ant will turn left. Meanwhile, if an ant goes into a red or a green square, then when the ant goes into it, the colour will change to the other one. So a red square will turn to green, and a green one will turn to red. And that, again, will dictate which way the ant will turn. If you set up the most basic lanterns and exercise, you will see very quickly that trying to predict what the pattern's going to look like becomes incredibly difficult. You can't do it. it. It has a shape but it will defy your expectations. However, the basic lanterns ant exercise will eventually lead after, I think it's something like 11,000 steps in the exercise to the ant starting to create a highway. That is a predictable diagonal path that moves up and away from the center of the pattern. Uh, And as far as we can tell, it will continue doing that forever. But there is no way to predict that that highway was going to appear from the starting rules of Langton's ant. And that can be shown in modern derivations, put in all kinds of variations. There are some that have got two ants. There are some that have got a hex grid rather than a checkerboard. There are some where the ant will perform in different ways. So they change the rules around the ant. And some of these lead within a a, a reasonable number of steps to an emergent property, a predictable outcome. Sorry, an unpredictable but regular outcome. Um, Whereas others don't appear to, or maybe we just haven't run them through enough steps, but because of the simplicity of the starting point, there's no way to know whether you're going to get an emergent property from one of these exercises without running through the steps and And that's that's the truest manifestation of an emergent property. Uh, I'm gonna move on very very soon, I promised to talking about actual miniatures war games, but I wanted to sort of set that context because there are variations of emergent property, and when it comes to miniature war games, we're gonna talk about how the complexity of the game influences them. but that said there are emergent properties that are more or less predictable uh, and and we'll talk about those within the context of miniatures war games first we need to say that you know in the context of what what Hofstadter was talking about miniatures war games are insufficiently complicated Um, generally speaking we're, we're talking about vastly complex systems like computers and brains and huge populations Um, so uh, even the most complex miniatures war game isn't isn't complicated enough really to to fall within the category of the kind of emergent property that, that Hofstadter was talking about but it's still a useful idea to hang on and it becomes more important in the context of miniatures war games when you bear in mind that any given miniatures war game doesn't exist in a vacuum in fact the more than than board games, miniatures war games have this unique uh, quality that you take a complex set of rules and you bolt them in with the undeniably highly complex system of human beings interacting with each other. Uh, and, And that in itself has a contribution towards this process of emergent properties. So yes we're talking about and i'm going to talk about now about how rules emerge as properties from rule systems Um, but keep in mind that all of this relies upon the fact that those rules are interacting with the far more complex human being in the equation okay so, in a miniatures war game there are really two kinds of emergent property that you get you get the intentional emergent property and the unintentional one and what you might think of as from a designer's perspective a good one and a bad one uh, let's look at the good emergent properties first now these again have kind of two, two varieties that are related but the first are those that are they're intentionally baked into the game so when the designer is writing the rules writing the game they are that they see as they're developing a rule they can see that it is going to possess a quality to the rule that doesn't need to be articulated but will naturally and organically emerge from the process as written and those are the best kind as a, as a designer those are fun those are kind of like uh, like easter eggs that you build into the rules and I'll give you a couple of examples first we can talk about traveler classic traveler rpg um famously possessed the fact that you could die in the course of character creation so in the traveler rpg character creation is quite randomized you as a as a player representing your character can have ambitions and you can have desires and things and things you'd like and want to do with your life but life doesn't always follow the lines that we want it to and in Traveller you sort of go through that process rolling dice that randomize around your decisions to show you what actually happens and within that are life events and a life event that can happen to characters is death Um, and you know players noticed that very early on it's impossible the designer didn't realize what they had done what they had done was provide the possibility of a character dying before the end of character creation so that character never makes it to the game now the emergent quality of that was how players reacted to the possibility that their character could die before character creation was finished. And some players just found it frustrating. But to be honest, those players will have found the character creation process of Traveller frustrating in itself, because they wanted more control, they wanted more say over who their character was at the start of the game, which wasn't something that, in its rules as written, that Traveller was going to allow you to do death obviously is the end it sends you back to the beginning but how players responded to that varied some would just go oh well that character's dead let's start a new one the more interesting and imaginative the more emergent property of that experience was characters saying oh well in some respect my new character exists as a consequence of that death so perhaps they might have been you know the protege of the character who died or they might have been the child or the partner or the best friend or somehow that they might have been the person that caused that death you know and somehow their life their their path as a character has been influenced by the death of the previous character that's not written into the rules that's not prescribed or required but it's an emergent property that people took from the fact that character death was built into the character creation process Um, a more mechanical example comes from the original inquisitor rules now these rules were subsequently changed but uh, i'm going to stick with them that the original rules for now so characters had a speed or have a speed characteristic which tells you how many actions you can perform but it's random so the characteristics say their speed a very high speed might be speed five low speed would be speed three What that dictates is you roll a number of d6s for each point of speed. And each d6 that shows a four or more gives you one action. So if you're speed five, you rolled five dice. Each dice that's four plus, you get one action. In the original rules, it was entirely possible to get no actions at all. Um, Now, it was subsequently and very quickly changed... So whether it was an error in the design, I didn't get a chance to ask Gav this, whether it was an error in the design or whether it was just something that was sort of realised very quickly after publication, I'm not sure. But very quickly they did change it to say, no, even if you fail all of them, you always get one action. Okay. So even if you get no fours or more, you always get one action. Now, regardless of which version of those rules you use, it creates what... Players came to call the rabbit in the headlights moment, when you might have said, "Right, my character is going to run across the road, dive behind that cover, leap up, and fire at this enemy." Great, you roll your dice, you roll badly, only got one action, you leap out into the road, and now you're stuck. You haven't made it to cover, you haven't had a chance to shoot back, you're in the middle of the road, where your opponents can see you, and that has a very powerful narrative impact it has an impact on the story but also has an impact on how players decide what actions they're going to perform uh, and how they react to the outcomes of those so if you do decide that your your character is going to rush out into the road and try to reach cover the possibility that they're not going to get there must always be in your mind so players how they managed the behavior of their characters was dictated by the rules and if you still went to do that rush out into the open move banking on getting enough actions and you didn't the consequences were something that you were aware were coming and so your behavior was modified and that is an emergent property of those very simple rules for activation good example um so again you know it, it wasn't articulated in the rules that you needed to do that you needed to think about you plan for the actions of your characters um but it's an emergent property something that didn't need to be articulated but was absolutely definitely in the mind of the designer we talked about it two weeks ago when they wrote those rules that that moment of being caught in the headlights was intentional So that's intentional. That's intentional emergent properties. Um, And and they they don't really fit in Hofstadter's approach to emergent properties um, because they're predictable. You know, the designer has seen that this mechanic leads to a predictable outcome and leaves it in explicitly. But I consider it emergent because it's not, it's not ruled upon. It's not something that's been written down and nailed down to say you've got to do this, rather the mechanics imply it and it's left to the player to perceive it, hence emergent. Then you've got the other kind of what you may call intentional emergent properties, which are ones that in the process of developing the rules, the designer didn't notice them. But as you play test, so you realize that something is there. And you have to make a decision i play tested it it's come out with this i didn't have that in mind that wasn't what i intended from those rules but that's clearly a thing should i leave it there or should i change the rules and when you decide to leave it there obviously intention is involved so it is intentional but as a property it's more naturally emergent it's something that you didn't have in your mind when you wrote the rules and a good example. Well. It's actually, it's really hard to know when you see one of these properties in a set of rules without asking the designer to know whether it's actually intentional. Sometimes, as in the examples I've given, it's glaringly obvious that it is intentional, but often it's not. Fortunately for you and me, we have a designer here who has done this in his games. So I can talk specifically about Zero Dark and what I call the Command Shuffle. And this is something that a lot of people came back to me when Zero Dark was first released to say, is this, is, can we do this? Is this legit? Um, which is, you've got a, a mechanic in the game called Cautious Move. Cautious Move is when you move a short distance and you make a test to see whether your enemies have spotted you. and if they ha- or, or notice that you're there. If they haven't noticed that you're, de- you're there, you get to cancel the enemy primary activation but if you get more successes than you need to cancel that primary activation you can use the surplus ones as bonus actions for yourself or for other members of your team consequently you can have somebody as a as a leader who's got a high discipline so they're rolling a lot of dice on a cautious test cautious move test who makes a small very short cautious move test minimum one inch and then rolls because they're out of line of sight they're a long way from any enemy they've moved very small distance their cautious test roll is really easy so they always cancel the red force activation and they frequently get a lot of bonus actions and as a result you can have a leader that stands back and just keeps feeding bonus actions to the rest of the team who can then sort of creep closer to the enemy or, or execute actions as a team thanks to the leader's bonus actions And people asked me at the start, was this intentional? Am I supposed to be able to do this? Doesn't this break the game? The answer, no, it doesn't. Some missions become much easier if you want to play it that way. If you want to hold somebody back. A mission where you start in one place, you go out, you do your activity, and then you come back to the place where you started. Yeah, absolutely. Leave a leader behind. He doesn't participate in the mission. All he or she does is feed bonus actions to the rest of the team to complete the mission and escape again great. If that works for you, or that's a tactic you want to follow, absolutely follow it. It is very much intentional. Think of it as representing the leader standing back, moving backwards and forwards, or communicating with base, or getting satellite readings, and that's what their movement represents, is them gathering information to be able to pass bonus actions to coordinate the behaviour of the rest of the team so it all sort of hangs together. Other missions, it's not going to work, or, or it's not going to work as well. If, for example you've got to get to an objective and then move on to another exit point if you've left somebody back in your entry point who's just doing the command shuffle they've got a very long way to get off the table otherwise you're going to be leaving them behind and if you're playing a one-off mission maybe leaving somebody behind doesn't bother you but if you're playing a campaign or playing playing a series of linked missions then leaving somebody behind has a very serious impact in zero dark because either you have to do another mission to rescue them or you don't get them in the next mission. You left them behind. So, you know, that is how I kind of balanced out the command shuffle when I realised it was a thing. Yes, for some missions it's good, for some missions it's not good. As I say, it's hard to know uh, when you come across this kind of thing whether it's an intentional emergent property that the design had in their mind or whether it's just one that they noticed later and decided to leave in without asking them. But intentional EPs, they're part of the game. They're Easter eggs. They're things that are there for you to discover. and Part of the joy of the game. But then we've got the unintentional emergent property. Um, and again, two kinds of these. Uh, you've got the unintentional emergent property that effectively breaks the game. To which the, the designer just has to go, that is a mistake. It shouldn't happen. We need new rules to fix it right now and they will release an FAQ or an erratum or, or a blog post or a YouTube video, whatever, saying, this thing, don't do that. You can't do that. Do this other thing instead. Now, it has to be said that these are often the funniest emergent properties because they create something that's utterly improbable or absurd. It's, it's permissible within the terminology of the rules, but it's ultimately wrong. And it shouldn't happen. But even though they're funny, they're also often not fun. Um, Often what they do is they break the game in favour of whoever is using this rule, uh, and they mean that the game is no longer fun for anybody. Either it makes the game far too easy uh, for one player or far too difficult for the other player. Uh, and uh, that's that's not why we engage in miniature war games so uh, and this is closely related to a very very old debate that i don't intend to get into now which was the old question of rules as written versus rules as intended now this actually kicked off related to something that we'll talk about later uh, or at least it was related to that and this is the question of if you read the rules and it permits something that seems absurd or game-breaking, do you play the game by the letter of the rules and just accept that this thing happens? Or do you conclude that the designer intended something else, that they misspoke, that they failed to clarify, that their intention was for something different and play the rules as intended? And the debate about this has been very fierce down the years, never really been sort of resolved. To be honest the side of the argument you're on often depends what kind of game you're playing and how you engage with the games if you're playing games explicitly with the intention of winning in a competition environment for example and the rules as written would advantage you you're more likely to be a rules as written kind of person if on the other hand they would advantage your opponent you're much more likely to go no 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 we should play the intent of the rules not the letter um and, and i think this very, very subjective issue i do have a, a very good friend in wargaming who i know listens to this podcast who who has in the past said uh rules as intended is cheating um i don't know if he still ascribes to that uh but uh probably knowing him um I I never had an opinion, and to be honest, I think I always saw in myself that I was inclined to favour whichever side of the argument was going to give me a better chance of winning in any given situation. Um, Generally speaking, uh, if, if the rules as written are doing something absurd, though, if it causes you to do something that renders the experience merely a game, merely an interaction of game pieces and rules, and no longer engages you in a narrative of conflict between forces, then you are, well, you're clearly not playing the rules as intended because these games are supposed to be narrative conflicts. They're supposed to engage you imaginatively. And if your imaginative engagement is broken by playing rules as written, then uh, you're doing it wrong that said uh when you do have this kind of emergent property something that really really breaks the game uh you will generally see the designer respond quickly uh you'll usually get an faq an erratum a a blog post to say no that's wrong don't play that anymore fix it It should be like this instead because it's broken the game it's eliminated the fun uh, and the games are supposed to be fun on the other hand you also get unintentional emergent properties that were never intended by the designer, but which the designer reluctantly accepts and doesn't change. And there can be a lot of reasons for this. Um, One reason we've already implied, which is that that it it just, it's consistent with the narrative of the game. Great example of this, I think it was back in 5th edition 40K when somebody discovered the leaf blower Imperial guard army list. Um, and this was basically a, a result of Forgeworld having a lot of freedom to release new tanks for the Imperial Guard with rules that they'd written themselves and which some tournament organisers, some important tournament organisers, decided were going to be legal for tournaments. And uh, some observant people realised, uh, or specifically one observant person originally, realised that if he spent a lot of money on Forge World tanks that were tournament legal and basically built his army mostly out of these tanks um, that he could essentially lay down very very powerful firepower starting at one side of the table working away to the other side of the table and just sweep his opponent off the board Uh, one or two turns game over just table the opponent every time and that they won several major u.s tournaments with the leaf Blower list and it was clearly unintentional on games workshop and forge world's part to do this it was partly a result that they didn't realize how much money people were prepared to spend to win tournaments that had no real financial incentive for victory um as i say at the time a sort of a typical imperial guard tank was like 30 35 pounds and a forge world tank was more like 60 or 70 pounds maybe even more than that and nobody thought that people were going to add more than like one or two forge world tanks to their armies nobody imagined that somebody would just drop two thousand dollars on a purely forge world imperial guard tank army um and yet they did and they created the leaf blower and the leaf blower for one season just annihilated everything before it um and it wasn't fun It wasn't fun for the opponent it wasn't particularly fun for the player on the leaf blower side um because you know there wasn't much happening but it's hard to deny that it was consistent with the setting and the narrative it wasn't that they were manipulating some edge case they were just laying down a vast amount of firepower and unsurprisingly vast amounts of firepower in a any (laughs) condition uh, will wipe out a predominantly infantry based army or a light armored army that's just how firepower works um so you know games workshop and forge world they didn't leap to fix this thing the tournament organizers fixed it eventually for the next season um and it's now been sort of fixed and addressed in slow time because a lot of those forge world tanks are now core tanks from the imperial guard they've been better balanced by the interior uh, design studio but you know, it, it wasn't inconsistent. It was an emergent property of something that had happened in Games Workshop and in Forge World around the 40k units. But it was consistent with the setting and the narrative. By contrast, Infinity third Edition, I think, and i i'm not going to pretend that i fully understand how these rules work so if you were a big infinity player and you used these rules or you saw them used or you engaged in the debate in a way that i did not um, i apologize but my vague recollection of it was that in close combat an ability in martial arts allowed one character to move the location of another character around them so they could place them in a new location And the intentionally, I think the intention in this was to basically sort of move people so that you could throw somebody into the line of fire of another target, for example, or put them into close combat with somebody else. But people spotted that if you were up against a wall, you could put them up against the wall. Literally, to turn them 90 degrees so they were pressed up against the wall, which in infinity terms meant that they were climbing. And one of the functions of a character that's climbing is that they can't fight in close combat. So, eventually, you were you were moving somebody in such a way that they couldn't hit you back, so you could never be harmed by them. Now, this, by most interpretations of the rules, was patently absurd. Um, you know, one, one doesn't take an opponent in close combat and, and squeeze them up against a wall to force them to climb so that they can't fight back. That doesn't tell a narrative that's useful. Nevertheless, Corvus Belli decided... For that edition and that season of their FAQ not to fix it, so they actually addressed it and went yes that is how the rules worked and the reason they did that was that infinity was very much a tournament driven system at the time um, and people were looking for edge rules that could manipulate their success in a tournament um, so so I think they sort of they reluctantly accepted it. In the subsequent edition and in, in future ITSs it was fixed in the Errata and it's no longer a, a tactic that you can use. But it, it was a thing that they reluctantly accepted. Now the best I mean all emergent properties work essentially as um Easter eggs in the game, intentional or unintentional. But the best ones are the ones that, that players Spot organically, that it's not brought to their attention by somebody else, but they can be reading through the rules and they can piece stuff together and it generates dialogue and conversation within the community, which is always a good thing for any game. To have people coming onto forums or onto Facebook groups saying, Oh, I've spotted this. Is this something I can do? Is there a rule that says I can't do this? Is this intentional? Has anybody tried this? That kind of conversation is great for a game because it means that people are really engaging with the rules in a constructive way. Okay, before I get to the point of wrapping this episode up, I do want to talk about the difference between emergent properties and edge cases. Um, emergent properties tend to arise out of rules, but they don't have to uh, any random number generator system can be a system that is sufficiently complex to acquire emergent properties. Classic example. Uh, You roll 2d6, you've got a one in six chance of rolling seven. Now it is the most likely total numerical outcome from a roll of 2d6. That in itself is an emergent property. Snake eyes, boxcars, on 2d6 it's not an emergent property. It is one outcome that is, in a, if anything, the least predictable possible outcome. The more dice you roll in a bell curve scenario, the more predictable the likely outcome of that roll. So if you're rolling 20d6, there's a very, very predictable band of results that you can anticipate from that roll 21s or 26s are extraordinarily improbable when they happen they are interesting you know when something like that if you roll 20d6 and you roll all ones that's going to be a memorable roll and it's going to tell you something interesting about the story but it's not itself an emergent property um it's just an edge case so let's say you've got a a Gretchen punching a land raider in 40k terms yeah so in the current 40k rules that's not going to do anything if i remember rightly um no i'm well out of date i know vehicles have now got wounds and toughness and stuff i can't remember whether it's possible to there's a band below which you can't wound them but let's say let's say you've got a rule set where you know the the land raider is rolling 20 d6 against that attack and as long as all 20 of them are not a one um you know that gretchen's not going to harm the land raider but there is still a chance, albeit vanishingly tiny, that you're going to roll 20d6, they're all going to be ones, and the Gretchen blows up the land raider from a single punch. Okay, It's a possibility. As a rules writer, there is a strong argument that you don't need to worry too much about the edge cases. Now, a lot of designers do, and a lot of rules do accommodate, well, what happens if? What happens if we get the most improbable result? You know, it's something that designers do think about. But as I say, there's a good argument that you don't have to. Because until your rules or your game reaches a certain critical mass of play volume, those outcomes are so improbable that in a way you don't need to worry about them. Now, is it possible for a Gretchen to destroy a land raider? Yes. Is it likely? Absolutely not. So the fact that it occurs isn't itself an emergent property of the rules. It's just an edge case. It's just one of those things. And you can accommodate your edge cases or you don't have to. Um obviously, the more likely an edge case is, you know, if it's a one in six chance or a one in twelve chance or a one in twenty chance yeah do you know what you know a five percent chance even a one percent chance is definitely something you should think about but once you sort of get beyond that point until you've got a very very high play volume edge cases are something that designers don't need to worry about and they are not the same as emergent properties they're just stuff that happens which is not the same thing uh right was there anything else i needed to talk about no nope. that's kind of it we're going to wrap up now um And I kind of want to start by going back to where we began, which was to talk about Hofstadter and what an emergent property is. And even though I have, and I totally freely admit I have played fast and loose with the definition, uh, the strict definition of what an emergent property is, it's always important to remember that regardless, an emergent property arises as an unexpected not necessarily unpredictable but unexpected outcome from a complex system so the complex is system the system is complex it has many moving parts it has lots of things to think about in our case it includes a person interpreting and applying the rules more or less consistently and from that emerges an unexpected unarticulated outcome perhaps i should say unarticulated so it's not something that the designer didn't see not necessarily something that even the player didn't anticipate but it's not something that's been articulated in the rules as an explicit intent you know when i go to hit something the rules say you roll these dice you hit you cause a wound you know and that's the consequence of the wound when you get different things interacting in a way that hasn't been articulated in the rules but a result of the rules, then it's an emergent property. And it's those complex systems. The more complex a system becomes, the more likely it is to have an emergent property. Now, the most complex rule systems tend to be roleplay games. And that is why roleplay games have a game master or a dungeon master or whatever. They have somebody who is there to adjudicate the emergent properties. So if some canny player comes up with a fabulous combination of skills and abilities and goes ta-da you've got a dm or a gm who can say either yep well done that's completely consistent with the game go ahead or who can say look i like your imagination but if you keep doing that it's going to ruin the game for everybody um so no and you've got somebody there who acts as an adjudicator but in tabletop miniatures war games you don't have usually you don't have an adjudicator of that sort that's why the more complex miniatures war games are more interesting in their emergent properties ah i knew there was something i meant to talk about earlier i knew Ah. reason i forgot this is because this is now the second or third time that i've done that i've had some technical problems recording this episode um so so i've already had this conversation with you but you didn't hear it okay Talking about games and emergent properties, I need to talk about Privateer Press and Malifaux, uh, War Machine and Malifaux. They are really good example of games that have been built upon the idea of emergent properties, and many people drew comparisons between those games and collectible card games like Yu-Gi-Oh and Magic the Gathering and Pokemon, in that those games rewarded a careful study of the synergies between different cards. And it's very much the same in "War Machine" and Malipo," that you've got characters, solos, warcasters, warjacks um, in "War Machine," and they come with their own cards that describe their special rules. And those special rules, therefore, have synergies. And some of those synergies are intentional on the part of the designers, particularly within um, the theme and story of the game. But some of those synergies are not intentional, they are accidental and players spend a lot of time studying the cards and the rules to discover those synergies both intentional and unintentional and that is a part of the game that is a, a, a fundamental function of the game. it's one of the reasons in a way that the approach of this character card approach that was also used in games like guild ball and is now very popular in bushido that is something that i personally avoid because Without really, really careful attention and constant playtesting, you can end up with these unintentional game-breaking synergies that you've then got to go back and fix with new cards. And if you've already packaged 200 units of a product with 200 cards, and you're having to release amendments to those cards, it's really awkward. It's much easier if you've got a fixed rulebook and you just have a consistent FAQ. But... um, no, those are games that are designed around this idea of emergent properties, both intentional and sometimes unintentional. I meant to put that earlier in the podcast, totally forgot. Sorry. But that's the nature of these unscripted episodes, I'm sorry. I, I have notes, but no script, and I, I totally forgot I mentioned, meant, meant to mention that. Okay, we'll go back to our conclusion. Okay. In conclusion. Emergent properties are something that designers should embrace, should welcome, should appreciate. Um, When they're intentional, they're Easter eggs. They're something the designer has left for the players to discover. When they're unintentional, it's the other way around. It's something the players are discovering and sending back to the designer. It all encourages a dialogue. It all encourages and supports community. As a designer, I've had people find things in my rules and ask me about them, and I've gone, that's not intentional they weren't emergent properties per se not in the way that they expand in some ways it was the opposite um people have pointed out things in my games where actually i've added a rule that was completely superfluous it didn't actually add anything to the game they said oh the way this rule works you'd be better off doing this other thing always and i'm like yes that's a good point point." and those are mistakes they're not emergent properties they are the opposite of emergent properties they compress the game they don't expand it But when I've occasionally had Emergent Properties, people have pointed out, it's great to have that dialogue. It's great to have that conversation, even though it's deeply frustrating to me as a designer, and it can lead to those moments of doubt. Am I actually good at this? Is this a waste of time? Is nobody ever gonna buy my game? Waking up at 2 a.m. going, I'm a failure. But regardless of that, it is still good. I should embrace it, I should welcome it, because it creates this dialogue, this conversation. It means that people are engaging with the game. They're interested in the game. And they want to participate in the process of developing it. And I do always have the freedom to go, that, not intentional. Um, And I can fix stuff. Um, It all adds to the joy of discovery. So whilst a good design will include Easter eggs, good designers will even take joy from the bad ones, the mistakes, the unintentional uh, emergent properties that we didn't mean to have there okay that's it second-ish third time round on this i really hope i've uh, recorded everything this time so before i go can i just point out my t-shirt today don't know if you can see that there we are this is a precinct to make a t-shirt um this is the most corporate one there are a whole range of designs i've got a t-shirt shop set up um and i'd love you to go and have a look at it and let me know what you think if there are designs that you think i could do or could add if you've got some ideas do let me know um, it's at precinctomega.tmil.com. If you're watching in YouTube, put that link on the screen. At the moment, it is locked behind a password. Uh, so, you uh, watching this are one of the privileged few who's going to know the password is T-Shirts Omega. That is T-S-H-I-R-T-S-O-M-E-G-A. T-Shirts Omega is the password to get into the shop have a look everything there is for sale you can buy it if you want to please do i don't make a lot on it but it certainly doesn't hurt to sell a few t-shirts but particularly if you've got some feedback suggestions ideas anything that you think i ought to be putting on a t-shirt you let me know thank you ever so much for watching Uh, please do like and subscribe on the channel i'm trying to grow my uh, youtube channel to the point that i can actually start monetizing it. it would be awesome Um, And if you like this content, do please consider subscribing to the Patreon. I have got a new £1 patron level for those who just want to throw me the occasional bone now and then. Thank you very much for watching. I will speak to you again. next week. The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world.